the Department of Energy's Joint Genome Institute. Kind of, it, it took the resources from JGI to make this possible. Innovation in the field of genomics. How living things transform our world. world, world. Hey, I'm Allison Takamura, and this is Genome Insider, a podcast of the U.S. Department of Energy Joint Genome Institute, or JGI. I want to introduce you to a plant, which has led sort of two very different lives here in the U.S. This plant, originally from Asia, is a tall, bushy grass known by its genus name, Miscanthus. Miscanthus was first an ornamental plant. I think it started in the 1870s. A New York nurseryman went to Japan and, and purchased some varieties of one with a white stripe called variegatus and one with a horizontal yellow stripe called zebrinus. That's Eric Sachs, a plant breeder and geneticist at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And he shipped them back to the U.S. And they're still for sale today in the nursery industry, those very two varieties. These grasses are surprisingly pretty, like a bit of avant-garde art in your garden. And Eric says, Miscanthus only got more popular. Another nurseryman. That nurseryman, Axel Olson. He procured a variety called Miscanthus giganteus, which can reach a staggering four meters or 13 feet tall. Not that Axel himself had to spend much energy on getting the plant. He didn't go to Japan. He just purchased the plant, had it shipped. How? Because of an ingenious marketing ploy. There was a very large nursery trade in the Yokohama area. And there was a very large nursery company called the Yokohama Nursery Company. And it would have a beautiful color illustrated catalog in English. And for this amount gold, you can get this much pieces of whatever you wanted. Including miscanthus. Most varieties of miscanthus are actually found in China. But because of the thriving nursery trade between Japan and the U.S. and Europe at that time, the late 1800s, early 1900s, most of our ornamental miscanthus are from Japan. And we have a lot of ornamental miscanthus. You can find them at nurseries and garden centers, often called by their common names silver grass and maiden grass. The names are probably allusions to the gorgeous silvery tassels that it has when it flowers. But this, this is just one side of miscanthus. Here's Dan Roxar, a geneticist at UC Berkeley and the lead of the computational genomics group at the JGI, to tell us about how miscanthus has substance as well as beauty. The reason we're interested in it is because it, it grows extremely rapidly perennial grass and produces an enormous amount of biomass. And it doesn't need prime agricultural land to do it. It can grow on marginal land with little fertilizer and little water. Without really taking care of it, we can generate a lot of biomass. And then that biomass could be converted into directly into energy by burning it or through uh, conversion into fuel. And so the idea is to create a sustainable bioenergy source using this plant. But it's going to take a lot more than a fancy illustrated catalog to bring miscanthus to the bioenergy market. To meet this challenge, scientists are investigating what farmers need, what helpful governmental policy might look like, and how unlocking miscanthus's basic biology 
could make the plant a hot commodity. First, let me run you through what Miscanthus has going for it as a bioenergy crop. It's tall, it's productive, it's perennial, so it'll come back year after year. It has thick, dense roots, and they're able to sequester carbon in the soil, which means the resulting biofuels that we would get would be negative carbon compared to gasoline. So this is more than 100% cleaner than gasoline. That's Madhu Khanna, an environmental economist at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. With Eric and Dan, she's a member of the Center for Advanced Bioenergy and Bioproducts Innovation, or CABI, one of four DOE bioenergy research centers. Madhu actually leads CABI's effort to understand the economics of deploying efficient bioenergy crops. She's also intimately familiar with Miscanthus's challenges, particularly for farmers, the people who would be growing this energy crop. There are a number of barriers that will affect farmers' decisions about adopting it, one of which is that there are significant establishment costs. These are the costs of planting. The process starts with the underground storage stems Miscanthus has. To the uninitiated, they look kind of like sweet potatoes. They're called rhizomes. And if you cut them up and plant them in the ground, lo and behold, you'll get new shoots of Miscanthus. But that process? It's expensive. Rhizomes aren't like seeds. They're not easy to collect because they have to be dug out of the ground. They're much heavier to ship, and they have to be kept moist because they'll die if they dry out. They're also harder to plant because they're bigger, so farmers have to dig deeper into the soil. It also takes two to three years to get fully established to be able to provide maximum yield. So during that time, farmers are not earning an annual income like they would with annual crops. Though, if the farmers had some marginal land that they weren't planning to grow anything on, they could use that without a financial loss. Still, there are other barriers to growing miscanthus. Additionally, with row crops, aka annual crops, Farmers have crop insurance, and so if there is a bad year, uh, they know that they will be covered for the downside risks. But for energy crops like Miscanthus, there is currently no crop insurance program. And so farmers would lose their crop insurance for the row crops and not be covered in case of any weather-related or other risks associated with energy crop production. Ouch. But Madhu's not finished. Additionally, because it's a perennial, it requires farmers to make a long-term commitment to keep their land under miscanthus for 15 years or more. And so as opposed to annual crops, they cannot frequently rotate with other crops depending upon changes in market conditions. In other words, miscanthus is a double-edged sword for farmers. Miscanthus is easy to grow once it's established, but it's almost too good. Once it puts down those dense roots, it's really tough to dig up. So if farmers choose to plant miscanthus, they're basically stuck with it. Of course, the hope is that they can then sell it. But unlike the relatively stable market for those pretty ornamental varieties of miscanthus, the market for bioenergy miscanthus can have tectonic shifts. That's why, Madhu says, you need long-term contracts for miscanthus. So that there is a assured market and a guaranteed price that farmers can hope to get if they were to convert their land from annual crops to miscanthus. If there is policy uncertainty, 
or as Madhu puts it, an unwillingness of the market to make long-term contracts, then that can make it very risky for farmers. So of all these factors, what does Madhu think farmers need most in order to grow miscanthus? I think the most important thing is to have a market for it. And in order to develop a viable market, we need to have assurance of policy that is going to create a demand for renewable energy and bioenergy in particular. And there needs to be some certainty, long-term certainty, that the policy will be implemented. Madhu mentions that we've had the Renewable Fuel Standard, which passed in 2005. It says, okay, we, the U.S., by 2022, will produce 16 billion gallons of next-generation biofuels. These will be made from plant cellulose, so we can use grasses like miscanthus. And we'll make that 16 billion gallons each year. That's about a tenth of the fuel that we use annually. But sadly, that policy has not been successfully implemented. We're producing less than 15% of what that policy had aimed for. And we're not using any energy crops, including miscanthus, to make biofuels commercially. At least, not yet. There is still hope, though. Future policies could be better designed to reach bioenergy goals. For instance, they could take into account bioenergy's climate benefits. Currently, there is really limited to no markets for paying farmers for the carbon sequestration, as well as just the carbon credits they generate by producing bioenergy. And so that's another incentive that could be provided in the future to take this to market. While scientists think about how to improve the value of miscanthus in the market using economic and policy incentives, they're also tackling the problem using their knowledge of miscanthus's biology. They're trying to make miscanthus hardier so it can grow on poorer land and withstand floods, droughts, heat, and cold. Eric, who told the story about nurserymen, miscanthus, and Japan at the top of the episode, he's gone to extreme climates, hunting for these kinds of tough traits in miscanthus. Even though most of these are from the tropics, miscanthus goes all the way up to approximately 50 degrees latitude in eastern Russia, where it's very, very cold-hardy. Just how cold-hardy? Eric has an illustrative story. I was visiting a station near Lake Hanka where we were collecting. There's a research station there, and they were with the station manager. It was a beautiful autumn day. We were in, like, shorts and short sleeves and stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, that lake, which is like one of our great lakes. It's huge. It's huge. And part of it's in China, part of it's Russia. And he's like, oh, that gets two meters of ice on it in the wintertime. And, you know, these rhizomes are only primarily in the top six to eight inches of the soil. So they're frozen solid. How do they survive that? Figuring that out could set the stage for a more cold-tolerant variety of bioenergy miscanthus. Another strategy is thinking about the big, bulky rhizome. Miscanthus is really good at moving fixed carbon into the rhizome, but... Maybe we don't want it to be so good. <laughs> Maybe if you leave it in the stalk, then you can actually harvest it right above ground. And find the balance where it still stays perennial, but at the same time, the, the stalks have a little bit more oomph in it. Quick introduction. You just heard, in this order, Steve Moose, a plant geneticist at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and Kangshita Swaminathan, a plant geneticist at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology, a JGI partner. 
Steve and Kangshida are also thinking about tweaking the types of compounds that miscanthus makes. Because if they can get miscanthus to make more valuable molecules, maybe they can tip the economics in miscanthus's favor. One class of those molecules? Lipids. Making up oils, lipids are... Very energy dense. They can be used right in a biodiesel or jet fuel application. Another potential avenue is creating base chemicals in miscanthus, which are used as the building blocks to other, more specialized chemicals. And they're often petroleum-derived. That's their current source. But they could be bio-derived. There's ongoing efforts to make these base chemicals in microbes, but scaling up might just be easier in plants. The plant side, it might be more challenging to get them to make these special things, but if we can, the scaling is very fast. I mean, just grow it, you know, and it's just growing a crop. And if you add value to it, you'll change that equation on the farm, right? If the farmer's gonna get paid more for it, because there's more value to share through the system, the farmer gets a little more of it. Then maybe you don't need subsidies or other incentives to get farmers to grow miscanthus. Instead, maybe... They'll be begging for it, right? If they hear their neighbors making more money than they are, they're going to want to be in on it. That would be a game changer for bioenergy. Of course, it's a long road to get miscanthus to that point. A lot of basic biology has to come together first before we can really build all the dreams. For example, Steve mentioned we're trying to make lipids in these grasses. But right now, the tools that we have are limited because our understanding of the biology of the plants are limited. Kangshida and other scientists still have lots of questions. How do you funnel some of Miscanthus's carbon into lipids instead of where it would normally go, into more plant biomass? How do you make sure the plant doesn't mind that major shift in its metabolism and still continues to grow like gangbusters? And this is where I think genome biology, gene function plays a big role. And JGI has enabled a lot of the science. In fact, JGI has helped Kangshida and colleagues get a genome sequence of miscanthus. It was published in late 2020. But that effort was more than a decade in the making. And the story took some unforeseen twists. It all started in 2007 with none other than the petroleum company BP. BP, then branding itself as Beyond Petroleum, was interested in bioenergy. So in 2007, they created the Energy Biosciences Institute, or EBI for short. BP had pledged 10 years of funding for the project, and they selected UC Berkeley, the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, and Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory to lead it. Steve and others pitched the idea of Miscanthus as a biofuel of the future to BP, and BP, through EBI, decided to pursue it. And then we had to quickly build a team that had to have the right expertise, and that's where Dan really came in. He's a leader in the technology and the analysis of genomes. Dan and his team, including Berkeley bioinformaticist Therese Mitros, were then leading the effort to sequence sorghum, another potential bioenergy feedstock. We explored sorghum in a previous episode of Genome Insider, so check it out in the show notes. Back to the team Steve was building around Miscanthus, another early recruit was Kangshida. 
She was really skilled, and one example was her ability to extract Miscanthus' DNA. Steve says that Dan definitely took notice. I mean, at one point, he wouldn't let anyone else make it, if I remember right. The team made steady progress for years, but by 2015, the Miscanthus data they had still wasn't enough to put together the genome. Unfortunately, this is when BP decided to call it quits. They dissolved EBI, having gone just about three quarters of the way through their original 10-year commitment. Why? Well, it's unclear. But BP did have the Deepwater Horizon oil spill disaster in 2010, and that might have been a contributing factor. Still, even though BP's institute was finished, the team wasn't ready to completely call it quits. We had this group that enjoyed working together. So they pushed on, slowly and without much money. But something else good came out of EBI's demise. Former international competitors suddenly became collaborators. During the EBI days, there were competitors. But when EBI ended, so did other funding in other places. And so everybody had this half-finished effort. In some ways, I actually see that as a positive thing because then all these groups really came to the table and we met at the plant and animal genomics meeting, sat around the table and said, okay, this is what I have. This is what I can contribute. It allowed everyone to pool their knowledge and keep chipping away at the elusive Miscanthus genome. Then in 2017, the researchers caught a break. That year, the Department of Energy formed CABI, the DOE Bioenergy Research Center that I mentioned earlier. CABI provided institutional support to jumpstart Miscanthus research. That really enabled us to then finish the job we had started. One of the benefits of the published Miscanthus genome is that it'll help speed up Miscanthus breeding programs. Scientists will be able to survey the genetic map and apply the gene editing tool CRISPR so that they can cut the 10-year breeding cycle in half. But Kangshina and Steve weren't making as big of a deal about the recently published genome as I would have expected. I know, but we have something better, which is why I think we're both... <laughs> okay, Kangshida explained is, it to me um, this way. So the first genome came from a variety of Miscanthus that they knew had a less complex genome. Still, it was hard enough putting the genome puzzle together, even when that puzzle was as simple as possible. But now, wielding newer technology, Kangshida and the rest of the Miscanthus team have something bigger in the works. They put together more complete genomes of multiple Miscanthus species from different parts of their range in Asia. Cavi scientist Therese Mitros at UC Berkeley, working with the JGI plant program at Hudson Alpha, is leading the analysis of those genomes. So why is Kangshida so excited about them? The genomes provide Kangshida and her colleagues just a much better foundation to understand how Miscanthus operates. I'm looking at this as a biologist, absolutely enamored and amazed at what the technology was just, you know, five, ten years ago to what it has become and the ability of these groups to really weave this thing together. To me, it's a piece of beauty. <laughs> By peering into the genome, Kangshida can see Ms. Candice's potential. The genome's a map, 
that'll allow scientists to take a grass that's often just used to dress up a landscape and develop it into a carbon sequestering bioenergy powerhouse. This episode was directed and produced by me, Allison Takamura, with editorial and technical assistance from Massey Ballin, David Gilbert, and Ashley Papp. Genome Insider is a production of the Joint Genome Institute, a user facility of the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Science. JGI is located at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in beautiful Berkeley, California. A huge thanks to geneticists Eric Sachs and Steve Moose and environmental economist Madhu Khanna, all at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, geneticist Dan Roxar at UC Berkeley, who leads the computational genomics group at the JGI, and geneticist Kangshita Swaminathan at the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. All of these scientists are affiliated with the Center for Advanced Bioenergy and Bioproducts Innovation, one of four DOE bioenergy research centers. If you enjoyed Genome Insider and want to help others find us, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question or want to give us feedback, tweet us at JGI or record a voice memo and email us at jgi-coms at lbl.gov. That's jgi-coms at lbl.gov. And because we're a user facility, if you're interested in partnering with us, we want to hear from you. We have projects in genome sequencing, synthesis, transcriptomics, metabolomics, and natural products in plants, fungi, algae, and microorganisms. If you want to collaborate, let us know. Find out more at jgi.doe.gov forward slash user dash programs. And if you're interested in hearing about cutting-edge research in secondary metabolites, also known as natural products, then check out JGI's other podcast, Natural Podcast. It's hosted by Dan Udwari and me. That's it for now. See you next time.